0: Welcome to the Punk Rock NBA podcast.
1: What's up, everybody? I'm Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA podcast. Today's guest is the one and only Andy Bersack of Black Veil Brides, or as you may know him, Andy Black, Andy Six from back in the MySpace days. One of the most important folks in this generation of rock and metal, and I'm very excited to finally have him on the show. We talk about a lot of things, but most importantly, the mindset and work ethic that have gotten him to where he's at, because I think that is a part of his story that anybody can learn from. So before we get into that, I just wanted to mention a few things that you can do to support the show if you are so inclined. Number one, just mention it on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Orcut, Bebo. We don't care. Anything helps. Number two, you can pick up some merch. I've got some coffee cups. I've got a couple new shirt designs that I think are pretty cool. There's a link to that in the show notes. And lastly, you can support us on Patreon if you really, really like us. You get every episode a week early. There's a members-only private Discord server that I'm in all the time. I do Q&As and giveaways. There's a way to have me review your music or artwork or podcast or anything else you would like to get my eyes or ears on. So if that sounds cool, you can check that out at the link in the show notes as well. But first, I want to give a shout out to our friends at the podcast called That One Time on Tour. That One Time on Tour is a music interview-style podcast hosted by Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris, and currently the guitarist and songwriter for Firesale. It focuses on all the aspects of being in a band, but as you might guess from the title, especially touring and songwriting. Chris covers band history, the music business, music theory, all kinds of other stuff that you would probably be interested in if you are listening to this show. Past guests include Fat Mike from No Effects, Milo from Descendants, Lars from Rancid, Pete from The Offspring, Eddie from Thrice, Chris from Propagandi, and many more. Personally, what I like hearing from any of these kind of artists is how they were able to have that breakthrough moment because I think that's what we're all looking for is like, how do I finally get that first little piece of traction that makes me go, aha, this is going to work. And there's lots of those moments on this show. So check out TOTOTpodcast.com for more info, or you can go to the link in the show notes of this description, or you can search for that one time on tour, wherever you listen to podcasts and thanks again for their support. And with that, let's get into this episode. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you for making time for this. Thanks, man. Thanks
2: for having me. Uh, as I was just saying before we started, I'm a, I'm a fan of the show. I just heard the episode with Ash. That was fantastic. And uh, Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm into it. I think, I think what you do
1: is great. Thank you. Well, I, I have to say, you know, I have always been insecure about my voice and I always wish that I had a cool voice like yours. You know, <laughs> if, if I did, I think what I would do is go around to just random people's grocery store or whatever and, and give them a real intense look and say, give me the access codes.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I could do that. It's interesting, like my voice is, it's something that I've never really considered in the sense that it's kind of always been this way. So for a lot of people don't know, I actually have a, a deformity in my, in my, uh, with my vocal cords. So your vocal cords, this is an audio presentation, but your vocal cords sit next to each other parallel and they flap like this uh, kind of back and forth and that's how the sound comes out. I have a deformed vocal cords where one sits on top of the other so I have to push twice as hard to make noise come out. And when it does, it lowers the timber and the kind of richness of my voice. So uh, a number of years ago, I used to get sick on tour all the time. A big part of that was drinking excessively and smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. But I noticed that I was having a lot of vocal issues. And for me to sing was always like, to create whatever my sound was, so I had to try really hard to sing. Like I had to push really hard. So I went to uh, a vocal specialist in Denver And they showed me a bunch of stuff, took scans, put a weird like little scalpel thing down my throat and actually separated my vocal cords the way that they're supposed to be. And my voice lifted like half an octave when I spoke like talk. So they were like, well, you can get surgery and it will... It will change your voice or you can just leave it the way it is. And of course, uh, I don't want to change my voice because it's it's my voice. But yeah, it's uh I, when I was a little kid, they called me froggy. One of the many things I was made fun of for as a little kid was having this deep voice. I
1: have to I have to ask, I'm sure this is sensitive, but how many times did you get called Andy Ballsack when you were a kid? It's not
2: sensitive. I mean I'm pretty <laughs> I mean you have to understand like, you know, I, I have and this is not a woe is me thing. I have been derided for just about everything possible from the time I was like six years old. So, you know, my personality, the things I was interested in, the way that I carry myself, my career, all these things have been hot button issues, whether it was on the playground or on, uh, you know, metal sucks or wherever it is. So the truth of the matter is that being called ball sack or any of these other things like they're, they're just kind of part and parcel of life. And I also think like those sort of things, those those kind of formative things that make you feel like you're a- alone are in weird ways uh, beneficial to the journey because, you know, the, I've always had a, well, if you don't get it, then I'm just going to do it anyway kind of mentality. And that is, sure it was earned because I was not, I was not well
1: liked. I mean, if people are gonna shit on you either way, then you might as well do what you want.
2: When I was really young, I was uh, kind of an overweight kid. I was called Chunk because they said I looked like Chunk from the Goonies and I was not popular. You know, people didn't really want to be my friend or talk to me and I figured out pretty early that I could just kind of build my own world. And from there, from the time I was really young, I was prepared for the, you know, at cincypunk.org, Photoshop pictures uh-huh. <laughs> of penises in my hand as a 16-year-old as opposed to a microphone and everything else. I, I was, It never came as a shock.
1: Well, I, I want to kind of focus on, speaking of Cincinnati, I kind of wanted to focus on, on some of that because I find it so inspiring. Um, like I was saying before, I remember you from when you were a little kid because my ex used to cut your mom's hair and uh you know i remember her saying that she gave you her your first you know scene haircut back in the day and all that so i remember you know when you were doing commercials and stuff when you were like a literal child and to see where you have come to today has always been super inspiring to me because you know i've lived in cincinnati too i know it's not the most inspiring place in the world so i do want to talk about that but since you mentioned it one of my favorite moments in your career is the golden gods thing because I think it sucks that as a public figure, you know, I mean, I get my fair share of it and you get a hundred times more than I ever have. I think it sucks that as public figures, you're just expected to stand up there and just take abuse from everybody for mm. just existing. And if you say anything back, you're an asshole. Sure. And I love that you said that, although I can see why in hindsight, it you know, you may not have chosen to do it that way. What are your thoughts on, you know, I not even that in particular, but just that dynamic of public figures as what I call like a shit umbrella.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the the truth is that the onus for an entertainer is put on on you to be able to entertain. And if you're given the opportunity to have a position that is, you know, I mean, look, hard work is obviously a big part of it, but there's a tremendous amount of luck that is involved in succeeding on any level to be put in a position where at Twenty years old. I'm in a band that's succeeding, and I'm going around the world and doing all this stuff. Like there is, there is a level of uh, societal understanding, which is that we've given you this thing, so now uh, we can kind of do whatever we want to you on an emotional level.
1: And Set it up is, so we can knock you down.
2: Yeah, but I mean, like that's also part of the deal, right? Like, yeah. and I think I think a lot of time is wasted by a lot of people and a lot of my contemporaries making sure that they make it clear to everyone that they're not cool with that agreement. And there's all these sort of like, you know, agreements that we make with the universe, because as someone who's a non-theist, like, I, I feel like this is what I've got, this is the amount of time I have, I get to have these opportunities, and then it's over, right? So if that is one of the many agreements that we've made with the universe, where essentially, at the end of the day, all that really matters is what we agree matters, then the opportunity to go up on stage and talk about a song that was voted at a fan fan-voted award show and all this stuff, those are things that you can Take advantage of or you can turn into a moment of anger as at the time, you know, the backstory of it and I wrote about it a lot in the book is I was extremely uh, close to that song songs about the death of my grandfather who had passed away the year passed away the year before um, I had written a speech about it. I was also somebody who my whole life I've, I've had sort of uh, what I call main character's disease, which is that I sort of believe that at all times I'm like the kind of the the movie Truman Show really fucked me up as a kid because I was like, oh, like, the, is there is there a possibility that everything, if, you know, we'll, we can get into that, but is there a possibility?
1: But but don't you think some people are kind of born to be more of a main character? Like, I mean, that's seems like you have been the main character. And I think that's partly by choice, but partly that's just who you were destined to be.
2: I don't think that there's anything remarkable about me. I think that I've been uh, in, a, in a position to be able to, to create things. I think that my mind works differently than other people. But I feel like it's a, it's a fool's errand to believe that you are somehow more substantial in terms of the society that we exist in than somebody else. And I think a lot of people do because you get fooled by your own hype. You know, there's a lot of people who, if everybody's telling you that you're the shit all the time, It's very hard to not have that start to get into your psyche and and who you are. So to get back to the Golden Gods, at that time, I'm certain that this moment's going to play out the way that I want it to, which is that I get to go up here and give the speech about my grandfather and everything else, barring the fact that I was extremely inebriated at the time and everything else. You know, the, the part of that that people don't know is we're a band that particularly in 2013 is, as I've said, derided by the metal audience. This is not the Grammys where there's a bunch of tables full of artists out there. It's an audience of uh, metal fans who are waiting for Metallica to play. Our award is like up against like four slots before Metallica plays. They are pissed that any awards are happening, let alone. this band that they they so greatly don't like. So then we have to stand there. I mean, the thing you can't see is that we have to stand there just off stage. And it's not like the Nokia Theater where- It's not
1: a big venue. It's, they make it look that way on on the video, but it's not big.
2: No, so we're we are inches away from people who are looking at us knowing that we just won the award they are spitting at us. I mean, I'm not exaggerating or or being, uh, this is not hyperbole. They're literally spitting at us and yelling at us standing there. So my rage meter is just growing inside me. So by the time we get out there, there's a combination of I'm very angry. This is not the way this was supposed to go. Don't you understand? You know, there's an AFI lyric about you strayed uh, from the flawless script on, on which I spent a lifetime, which I've always loved that. Like, because that really is part of the, the kind of perspective that you have as an artist. Or I think a lot of people do where you're like, this is the way that the world is going to go because I've thought of it this way. So going out on stage and it not happening that way was another thing that burst my damn. Then the fact that this is something that, we've had to deal with now for at the time like two or three years of just constantly just trying to do our best to perform and put on shows and have fun and just having shit thrown at us all the time and everything so it really just was a, a damn bursting moment now the things that i regret about it is not being angry it's about the things I said specifically, you know, being awful to somebody who may be dealing with body image issues.
1: But it was funny.
2: I mean, sure. But I mean, look, the, the truth of the matter but is you're right. You're right. Saying yeah. the stuff that I said is not how I would do it now. But the, the what, I, what I meant by all of it is I cannot believe... That your hatred of me is more important to you than allowing me to just take this fan voted trophy and go thank for you. For 45 to my fucking seconds. Yes. It's it that so yeah, that 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 is the frustrating part. And that was the frustrating part for the beginning of the career was you know, we'd play these big festivals or whatever, and you know, we'd go out and our, our set is a half hour, right? And so you're not even going to listen to the music, you're just going to start throwing things immediately. So it built this. It, it, what it, it did inadvertently was I think it built this community around us that has stayed to this day where it was not disingenuous in any way. The representation that we had of the people that we were speaking to directly and the songs that I'm writing are about these ideas. And you can witness it directly that you're here at this show or you're here watching us at this festival. And the person right next to you might be throwing a bag of shit at us just the way that that way that you feel at school or at work or whatever else. And I think that the unfortunate, and we can, I mean, we can go down this path forever and you talk about timelines and everything else. The unfortunate byproduct of that, though you did say that you don't believe we're influential, I believe that the thing that we were most influential in is that that era of time, people speaking directly to that outcast, this, the downside of that is that you ended up with a lot of bands selling loneliness to lonely yes, kids and absolutely. the disingenuous Pandering. nature of that. Yeah, yeah And so absolutely. I think that that, you know, if there's a double-edged sword, there is the the, uh, the connectivity and the community of these kids that felt this certain way, who were derided by the pop-punk community, the metal community, the hardcore community, every single sub-genre of the world that we like, they were not seen as legitimate, and then had this home, whether it's us or Motionless So White or, or Ronnie or these other bands that were kind of this home for these kids. Outside of that, you saw other bands looking at that, and I'm not gonna name names, but to vulture that and go like, oh, that's the tactic, right? Put on some eyeliner, Put some snappy Logans on T-shirts about how you're lonely and we're going to be there for you. And it's sort of I think you've been able to separate the week from the chaff over the years and see what was real and what isn't.
1: Yeah. Well, I did appreciate that you said that because it felt like a much deserved, you know, punching back at people who just spend a lot of time punching. And I appreciated that. So, for whatever that's worth, and I'm sure a lot of other people did as well. Let's talk about what I was talking about earlier as far as that early period where you're kind of in a place that's not known for spawning a lot of, you know, creative talent. What made you believe that you, and I guess this kind of gets back to the kind of main character thing, what made you believe that you could do it as a little kid in a B tier Midwest city like Cincinnati?
2: Well, why not me? I mean, that was always the question is, well, if they did it, if, if Steve Bader's from Cleveland can be in Lords of the New Church and look this cool and get to do this for a career, why couldn't I do it? I looked at it realistically as a kid, even though I didn't really understand it. Like, I've always said that the goal for me was to just be on the other side of the fence at Warped Tour. When I was a kid, I remember going to see my first ever Warped Tour was Rancid, Dropkick and AFI all on the same stage in order. And I watched that and went, that's what I want to do because I had never seen that before. I had listened to these punk rock bands that my dad had introduced me to growing up, but I had never seen the energy of that show. The only shows i had ever gone to were Kiss and Aerosmith and these kind of like dinosaur rock bands at the time where their production was massive and it didn't seem attainable. It seemed like they were sort of this other thing. Whereas when I went to work tour and saw the Phenomenauts playing on egg crates or Groovy Ghoulies playing on in a tent, I thought, well, that's they're doing that. Like, I could do that, and that's really cool, and I want to do that. So the goal was just to be on a bike on the other side of the fence at Warped Tour or on the cover of Alternative Press or those kind of things. So my goal, even though I loved Kiss and Motley Crue and ACDC and these kind of classic rock bands that i had been introduced to, my goal was, you know, if, I, if, if Tiger Army gets to be on stage and do this, like, why can't I do it? I feel like there's a path to get there. And so it was about the work to that point. And even though you know, my aesthetic or the music that we made or all these things, people don't necessarily understand where that came from for me. It was never about uh, mainstream success. I've never had a dream of winning a Grammy. I never had a dream of being on TRL or any of these things. My dream was to be wherever these bands that I absolutely loved, whether it was the Misfits or Alkaline Trio or these other bands, if I could be in that position, then that would be the dream. As time has evolved, We've obviously been able to, in many, in many of those instances, become a bigger band than any of those bands were. But the going to Warped Tour was the impetus for all of it because I got to see that oh, there is an opportunity for somebody who's not just uh, blessed from the sky, rock god of the '80s before I was born. Like there is an opportunity for somebody who is just interested in entertaining and 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 making songs and singing along with people and everything else and getting this feeling out. So I, it never felt. Like I couldn't do it. When I was a little kid, I remember I talk about it in the book saying to my mom, like, well, you know, why would anybody do any other job if this is an opportunity? Like if you could be Gene Simmons and stick out your tongue and spit blood, like what other gig do you want? You know what I mean? It didn't make sense to me that any anybody would pursue anything else. Now as an adult, obviously I understand how kind of how myopic that is, but I just felt like it was it was the thing that I wanted to do with my life and everything else was in service of that goal.
1: It's interesting to me when I look at you know your career and you know hear you talk about your influences like that i think there were a lot of people who you know maybe are your peers or cohorts who wanted to be famous or wanted to be like seen idols or whatever whereas i've always felt like you were just into the craft of it if that makes sense of being an entertainer
2: yeah i mean i i think i always saw like myspace and stuff i just saw it as a as a tool And I I, I don't, this is a lot of self-aggrandizing, like I'm some sort of genius that saw something that's very obvious. It's just that I always felt like anything I did was in service of the greater goal, which was to get to do this for a living, to get to be the person who's on stage and makes music and makes records and builds worlds, sitting in a room right now, surrounded by pieces of costumes that I'm making right now for a music video. You know what I mean? Like this is at 30 years old to be able to say like, this is what I do for a living that is i get to draw pictures and dress up in crazy costumes and do all this other stuff like that is a dream so the goal was never fame the goal was just to however famous you have to be to do this for a living would have been the goal and then to get cool opportunities that's why like when people say what's the end game for the band or whatever else it's always just been to get to do this to get to decide when you're done doing it a lot of times the world and the marketplace decides when you're done to get to be in a position now where I've not been told yet that it's over. You know what I mean? People still continue to listen to our stuff and care about what we do. That's a very fortunate position to be in.
1: Do you have that feeling where you expect the other shooter drop any day and they're like, all right, Andy, time to wrap it up? I mean,
2: I've felt that way since I was 17 years old and put a boulder on my back and said, OK, I'm going to drop out of school with no education and no job prospects and live in my car or in Los Angeles in a parking lot. People always go like, man, you've got so many things going on. It's like meant to be a compliment because there's this assumption that it's not a necessity. Like hustling and making things happen is a necessity for my life that I strap myself with willfully and and with great interest as a kid. You know, like I, I I, didn't give myself any other opportunities. I didn't finish school. I don't even have a GED. Like I don't have any other opportunities for anything. It's, it's nice that people compliment me and say that I'm well-spoken, but I couldn't get a job anywhere if I wanted to. You know what I mean? Like it's not, this is the thing that I have. And so everything I ever do is to, if somebody gives me an opportunity to do it, I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna do it as well as I can, whether it's acting or, you know, directing a music video or writing a comic book or voice acting or all these other things. It is seen as indulgence. Like I'm so proud of myself and I get to do all these different things. The reality is, and I. this is not, again, not a what was me, but it's a. It's I have to do this both on a practical level and on a this is what I'm born and meant to do level.
1: The reason why I do a lot of different things is not because I want to be working around the clock all the time, although there is some of that. I'm just sort of by nature driven to do a lot of things. But a big part of it is because I'm afraid that any one of those things could go to zero tomorrow. And I don't want to be caught flat footed with no irons in the fire. Yeah.
2: When we made our first major lip, there was a book in the studio that was a collection of eighties hair metal guys. So it was it was a coffee table book with pictures of like Nitro and Winger and, and again, this is not to be rude about any of those bands. Sure. For what it's worth, by the way, not an influence on me, that era and genre of music. Specifically, the influence was always the Blackie Lawless, Nikki Six look, combined with more specifically, and the thing most people miss is Lords of the New Church. It was one of my dad's favorite bands, and it was a band I was introduced to when I was like four years old. And so that was a huge influence on the look. And I think sometimes people get it confused because there we did end up in a position where we were be, heavily pushed by the time we did Set the world on Fire to be like the modern glam band, and that is why there was a pretty significant reset by the third record. Anyway, sorry. Um, there was a book full of hair metal bands and the quotes were, this is gonna last forever. Man, like this is all gonna be great. Like it, every, it was a, it was essentially a sardonic take on the fact that all these bands were one at wonders or whatever, and it, their bottom dropped out uh, from underneath them. And, and so I remember reading that book at whatever I was, 19, 20 years old. And, and it wasn't so much that it gave me fear But it did, it furthered my belief that you have to earn it. You have to work hard and put out shit that is worth the putting your name on it. You know, if somebody doesn't like our records, that's fine. If somebody thinks that we are not a good band or that we're derivative or that we don't, whatever, whatever bullshit you want to say, that's fine. I believe that if you look at it objectively, uh, we have never put out anything that we didn't care about or put everything into. And so it has always been the objective of, if you're given this opportunity, bust your ass on everything you're doing because anything else is squandering the opportunity. The specifics of whether something is enjoyed by somebody or not is inconsequential to the act of actually doing it to the best of your abilities. And so I think, like you said, you're making 12 videos a week and you're doing a podcast and all this other stuff. It is inco- You're not thinking about while you're doing it I'm pretty sure everyone on the internet's going to love this video. You're thinking, I'm really happy with this, or I think this moment's funny, or I think this edit's good, or I think this interview's great. And then you're putting it out there. And as long as what you're putting out at the end of the day is substantive towards the thing that you love, you can justify releasing it. And I think that there's a huge misconception with people who are not artists or musicians who comment or critique art or music, because they think that, the assumption is that we're putting out things that we assume everyone's going to love, and then it's their job to tell us that they don't love it. Which we're they putting do. Out things that we love and hope that somebody likes it, but the uh, we're, we're not sitting down and going, "Let's make a record that everybody likes," because that's a fool's errand.
1: Right. I wish. I mean, if anyone has that formula, I'd love to hear it, but it doesn't seem that anybody does. Well, one thing you did that I think is missing from the way a lot of people approach things. You had that same dream. There's tons of people that have that moment of going to Warped Tour and having that same sort of realization, but you put in like a lot of very kind of practical, you took the steps to get there in a way that most people at that age just wouldn't, you know, as far as doing auditions and commercials and going to the, you know, performing arts school and all that stuff. What kind of led you down that path of, taking those like really tactical steps well the
2: acting thing was was pretty i mean accidental in the sense that you know as a little kid my parents had a few different uh soundtracks to show to and so it would be phantom of the opera or sweeney todd and i'd listen to them all the time len carew's singing voice was one of my biggest influences as a little kid i've always said that i try to sing somewhere between mike Ness, len carew and and bruce springsteen that's my my vocal style like you know what i mean like those were the things that shaped how i sing And that's a combination of all those things. So as a kid, I I would act out as like a three or four year old, I'd act out these musical things. And so I knew that acting was part of music in a way. So when I I went to this school and thought, well, I'd like to sing and I think maybe I could do acting as as a side part of that. And you had to have two majors at the performing arts school. And so I auditioned for both departments. I did not excel in the vocal music department. I have always had a pretty unique Voice, I don't think it's it's too uh, patting myself on the back to say that. I think, in fact, in many cases, it's been a detriment to, to my career in the sense that many people don't like or get it. Uh, over the years, thankfully, I've been able to carve out an audience with what my sound is, but it's very specific and unique to me. Um, as a kid, that did not work in a choir environment. It just didn't sound good. And I would try to be, as it turns out, you can't be the lead singer of the choir. So I was asked uh, to leave the vocal music department and told that I would not be a singer. Oh, wow. I happened to... At the same time, very early on, hit it off with my drama teacher, uh, David Roth, who I cite as one of the biggest like influences and, and inspirations in my life. He said, do you want to do some acting? And I said, yes. And he goes, do you have any experience? And of course, I had learned very early on that you just lie about that and go, yes, of course. And I, of course, had never acted in anything. He said, well, then I'm going to need you to do a monologue. Because we're doing a show, Uh we're doing Harvey, which if you don't know is a Jimmy Stewart vehicle from the, the, I believe the late 50s where he sees an imaginary rabbit and all this stuff. So they're doing Harvey and they're going to audition the Jimmy Stewart role. And he said he needed to have a monologue. So I said, oh, of course I have a monologue. So I didn't, and I brought in, I did a dramatic reading of the lyrics to Dig Up Her Bones from the Resurrection Era Misfits as my, uh, and of course that no one in the room knew that that was Misfits song. And I got the part and I loved it. I fell in love with the idea of acting. There was no singing in this. I just loved that I could make people laugh. I loved that like the, the idea of dressing up in this costume and all this stuff. So around the same time, this was during like 2004, 2005, and there's a big boom of all television shows feature Uh, clean cut Midwestern kids. So they would send talent scouts to these these schools, like kind of these charter schools in the Midwest to try to find like the next clean cut Midwesterner. And then they'd bring them to LA and have them audition for a bunch of stuff. Well, I was encouraged to audition for these people, even though I didn't have the, you know, I was the only kid who like, you know, wearing eyeliner and mascara and, you know, devil lock and everything else. So I, I, it didn't, it wasn't the, the aesthetic that they were thinking, but I suppose they were weirded out enough by me to say that it would be fun for me to come and do it. So I came out to LA for about two weeks. I auditioned for a commercial uh, and, and I auditioned for a couple commercials and I got some stuff and I got to film those and it was great, but it was never the dream. Like it was never, it was just a thing that I got to do because I couldn't play anywhere. Nobody would take me seriously. I couldn't get anybody to really focus on being in a band. I would play, my first band, which was just beer sack because I couldn't get anything else going, I figured I'd just name it after myself. We were playing like art galleries in Northside and basement shows and book your own fucking life and doing show swaps and-,
1: and, and an art gallery in Northside is probably the size of like my living room here, and there's like twelve people there.
2: Yeah, oh or less. And there's you know, I mean and and the our drummer at the time was my dad's forty five year old drummer. Frank, by the way, nicest person in the history of the world. You can imagine the favor that he was doing for drumming for my weird pseudo horror punk band when I was, you know, 13, 14,
1: 15. Actually, it's cool. Now that you mention it that way, that is a cool thing for your dad's friend to do.
2: Yeah, it wasn't. He didn't want any glory from it. He was just trying to help me. Uh, And that's why I would say Frank is uh, provenly a better man than I am, because I'm not sure that I would return the favor. If like a 12 year old came up to me and said, hey, could you sing for my band? Uh, I would have to think for a minute about how that would reflect on me, which mm-hmm. I think is the inherent ego that Frank did not show by saying yes immediately. It's not possible for me to not overextend every single thing I ever say.
1: <laughs> no, I, I understand, you know, people you you've had ten years of people picking apart everything you say and do. and, you know, I, I understand that because I do the same thing in my videos and people are like, why don't you just say what you think? You don't have to qualify everything.
2: I sort of do, though. You know what I mean? Like and you it's, do. It's not even just because of other people. It's just the way that I, I like to speak. I like to give the detail and context of things because I sure. think it's, it's helpful. And, you know, I think it's also people talk about like, again, this is not to to try to be too too self-aggrandizing, but I sometimes get complimented for my skills in interview that I'm able to to drive a narrative home and all that stuff. And it's not it's a parlor trick only in the sense that it's just giving detail. If you can talk about a thing like there's no reason in the world that everyone shouldn't be able to talk about a thing that they give a shit about. You know what I mean? Like it's just Mm -hmm. anyway, that's a whole separate thing.
3: Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? (laughs) How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman.
1: And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Here's, I guess, what I'm getting at is so many people in the same circumstances would have cynically said, you know, fuck this. Like, oh, they said I couldn't be a singer. So I said, fuck that. I quit school. Or they wanted me to audition for this commercial. And I was like, fuck that. That's corny. I'm not the, you know, there's so many things that you said yes to that a lot of people would have turned up their nose at or quit or whatever. And I think there's so much to be learned from that mindset of saying yes to things.
2: I mean, yeah, I think... I believe that there's probably a whole cottage industry of of pseudo inspirational books about saying yes to everything. You know what I mean? Like I feel like that's I'm sure that's a whole thing. My
1: my favorite one is like the like censored swear word on the cover. Like you're a freaking awesome lady boss, and nobody can tell you crap.
2: Yeah, that's my favorite subgenre. Book about hope is one that I just saw the other day. Maybe (laughs) it's a great book, but I just love like that like edgy title thing. There is no secret on any level to just being willing to if people are going to give you an opportunity to try. And I think that I am constantly surprised by people that I know who I have worked around or been peers with in some capacity who do not see the value in an opportunity. You know what I mean? And, and that's more often than not, people's careers or viability fall by the wayside because to start smelling yourself, for lack of a better term, to start to feel the hype of I don't need to do that or I don't need to, to, to try my hardest there that is when you start to fall prey to your own belief system which is that you are placed here by god to rock the masses and that you're better than everybody else in some way because you've been given this gig and that is just demonstrably not true these opportunities are it's a combination of a lot of things but the work that goes in combined with somebody propping you up we are a band that even in the earliest days here could not get a show, our first show in Los Angeles because we couldn't get booked anywhere, it was in Tony Alva's skate shop in the back parking lot. It was the only That's show- It's pretty
1: cool first show though.
2: Yeah, because we had, you know, uh, Richard Villa who re- work, has worked on our art for years and, and ran uh, Tony's shop and Tony liked our music, so there it is. We get an opportunity and we're gonna take it. Uh, and then, you know, down the line, it's kind of always been that way, but taking those chances when you can, And not letting people, the number of times in the early days that I had meetings with people where it would be somebody who was really well to do in the industry or, or pretending like they knew what they were talking about, telling me that the band had no future, that the band wasn't going to go anywhere. The band was not nearly as viable as this band or that band, which I don't need to tell you, all of those bands have completely disappeared or fallen out of favor by now. But the number of times that we were not chosen, the, I call it the, the wrong horse syndrome, the number of times that somebody bet on somebody else and didn't give us the shot, all of that, yes, you can put it down to me and the band and our, and our efforts, But the bigger part of it is an audience of people that decided that we were viable and that we were willing to or we were worth putting on the pedestal and knocking down those doors for us, winning those fan voted awards, giving us those opportunities so that if that's what they're doing for me, if the people who are watching our YouTube videos, buying our record, buying our merchandise, putting us in a position where a band that was so apparently universally hated is doing really well, then it's my job to say yes to opportunities because I've been given this shot in the first place.
1: Well, so what would your advice be for somebody who is presented with some sort of an opportunity and they feel like it's not right for them for whatever reason? You know, there are times where you should say no. What would you say to that person? I know it's hard to generalize, but any guidelines on what to say yes and what to say no to?
2: It's very hard for me because I, I could probably count on one hand the number of things that I've out and out just turned down. And usually they for some sort of emotional or personal reason, where there's something about the platform or outlet or something else that I don't agree with, or there's something about what I'm doing that wouldn't work for me on, a, on an
1: emotional level. So it might make business sense, but because I don't agree with X part of their business, I'm going to say no to this.
2: Yeah. By the way, that comes up very rarely. You know what I mean? It's not. I'm not put in a lot of positions that uh, that is a decision that has to be made. But. If you can look at it and, and, and analyze it from the perspective of what is the benefit of this, I think a lot of people also be confused about what a personal benefit is versus what a financial benefit is. The number of things that people assume that I am paid to do because I'm doing it versus the number of things I do because I believe it will be good for me, an experience that I can do, and maybe in the future, give me an opportunity to be able to have Financial gain from that world or that partnership or that relationship that I developed. I think you got to look at it from how it benefits you in the long run and how something, if it has no inherent benefit on an emotional, a financial, or what if you want to call it spiritual, or just the the level of making you happy, then it's an easy pass because you don't see any viable value. The harder issue becomes when something is financially viable, but emotionally not, or is, you know, not financially viable, but something you really want to do. I think that the easiest things are if you have something that you really want to do, and you're really interested in it. And this is going to be terrible advice for, for the business tycoon types. But I think you just fucking do it and then you figure it out and you make yourself happy by doing that opportunity.
1: Well, I do think it's funny that people turn up their nose, you know, especially music people turn up their nose at the idea of doing something for exposure. Well, I think that's a very good reason to do a lot of things
2: sure i mean look i'm in a hard rock band in 2021
1: you do a lot of things for exposure right
2: (laughs) for for most of my career what i make in the art that i'm involved in has been the equivalent of going to an apple store and trying to sell someone uh like a tape deck you know what i mean like it's not (laughs) it it is seen by the large mainstream as antiquated it's not appreciated there's nothing but infighting within the genre and cannibalizing of things (laughs) that are successful there's all this stuff and yet it is the thing that I love the most and the thing that I associate with directly and the thing that I will defend against anybody outside of this. The thing that shocks me is people that don't understand how important it is for these these successes to occur within what we do and how important it is for the rest of us. Avenged Sevenfold getting a number one album is helpful for everybody. By the way, pop stars and all these current top 40 artists wearing shirts of all of our bands and acting and dressing and singing like the, the early era screamo bands and all that stuff that is, helpful for us, it gives us an opportunity to be able to be seen by an audience that wouldn't otherwise see us. There is an inherent cannibalistic nature that people have to what we do in this genre, in this this area of music that I believe is detrimental to the growth, but that's a whole other thing. I would say that the number one thing, if I had to give advice to somebody who had to turn something down or didn't want to do something on the merit of what what it's going to do to them personally, that's an easy no. If you can do an analysis of it and see where it could potentially benefit you for, as you said, exposure or helping you in some way, Then I would always do it, because that is the school that I came from. That's why I was doing show swaps in basements in Chicago and all this other stuff as a teenager, because I thought that it would benefit us in the long run. Playing on these ridiculous victory records bills in Cincinnati, where you would play at two in the afternoon and have to pay $500 to do it before 75 other bands play, maybe it would benefit us in some way. You know, There was a band called Close to Home in Cincinnati that we would open for all the time. We'd have to pay to do it, but I knew that people came to those shows and we garnered an audience that way and I could keep extending what I was doing in some way that way sometimes you don't even have the money to do it
1: on that note how much did your myspace I'll, I'll say fame but you know you were you were very popular on myspace
2: it's kind of blown out of proportion honestly I really wasn't I was not myspace famous
1: it doesn't seem like it really Gave you any sort of huge leg up with music?
2: I was not MySpace famous. That is a a retcon of my history that uh, has has been co- sort of this kind of like apocryphal tale where I came from the same school as Jeffrey Star and these other characters. I was the equivalent of like someone that has fifteen thousand
1: Twitter followers. Really? Yeah. In my head, you were much bigger than that.
2: And it's it's simply not true. I was. I, was, I did all right in the terms of the what you might call metrics or statistics now, but there was no big earth-shattering Blackville Bride's presence. When the Knives and Pens video came out, the fact that it got, I believe it was like 60,000 views in the first week, made absolutely no sense. And there was no, like, there's no way that you could have planned for it because there wasn't the audience there. We were not scene kings. We were not all over the place. You know, in the way that... Ronnie and Escape the Fate were in the way that Tokyo Hotel was and the way that there were these other characters that were these big monoliths. I was C tier at best and trying my best to try to get out of it because you have to understand the other thing is like I didn't have any money so we couldn't have professional recordings. We had like covers of some kind of hate on a tape cassette recorder in my living room as the song that would play on our MySpace player. Like it just wasn't There is a revisionist history of the band's uh, success on, on that era. What I did do was I saw it as a tool, like many of us did, as an opportunity to connect with other people and to build up at least some core level of audience so that people would come to these shows.
1: And understand what sort of things they resonated with that you could talk about in songs and things like that.
2: Yeah, I don't think that anybody who liked us at the time really knew or shared any interest with me. In the earliest days, it was about an aesthetic. And the aesthetic for me was developed from... I loved, like I said, the death rock stuff, the big makeup. And I wanted to look like Andrew from Sisters of Mercy. And then all of a sudden that, that look started to become more exaggerated. And then the 80s hair metal thing became more exaggerated. So I found myself pretty easily fitting into a style and scene of music that I really had. If you want to call somebody a poser, the biggest poser in the whole world was me trying to trick kids that listen to Under Oath into thinking that I gave a shit about any of the music that that they liked. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I didn't know anything about that world. I was listening to Guanabats and Meteors and Tiger Army and Psychobilly bands and, uh, you know, social distortion, and that was the thing I loved. But I knew that my aesthetic that I was interested in, whether it came from Nikki Six or whatever the derivation was, plus this era of music that was coming up, I felt pretty strongly that those things could connect together, and I kind of built this Frankenstein of... Misfits covers with a uh, scene kid hair. You know what I mean? Like that was, <laughs> and that was kind of the beginning. That's not ultimately what Blacktail Brides became. That's not what we're known for. That's not the style of music that we wound up becoming and what people found from us from 2010 post. But the MySpace era of me and Blacktail Brides is this very bizarre disconnect of aesthetic over music from an audience perspective and music over aesthetic from a music perspective. You know what I mean? Like it was it was kind of this, our audience and us were not seeing the same thing. And by our, I mean me and a rotating cast of 25 other people.
1: (laughs) Right, well, there's something interesting there to me. There's a feeling, I think, among a lot of people at the beginning that they have to have some master plan and perfect strategy and have to have all this figured out and then they execute this plan. Whereas I think your story is much more reflective of reality, which is you kind of just haphazardly stumble through it until eventually things come together.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just you if if you keep pushing and you keep trying, then you get to a place where, you know, you have to also remember my age. When I'm starting all this, I'm a literal child. When we start touring, I am still a teenager. By the time we put out our first record, I am still a teenager. By the time we're on a major label, I'm just about to turn 20 years old. My life is spent by the time I'm actually making decisions and learning about the industry and figuring out how to make a goal and a plan and how to get to the next step, I have kind of gotten to the point where I realized that one decision begets the next decision and gets to the, down the line. But in the early days, it was just keep pushing, keep trying. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it because if they can do it, I can do it. And that was kind of the abiding belief. By the time Black is in its kind of biggest phase, that's when I have the, the benefit of being involved with Blasco, my manager, and having these people around me who, you know, John Severson, who's my tour manager for years and years, who obviously is very well known for being the drummer and founder of the band Daughters, learning about his life and, and learning about what the road is like from that perspective Learning about the managerial perspective, learning like I, learning the business by the time I'm in my early 20s, and then really kind of shifting my focus from. It, it's just plugging things in and trying to make it work To Now I have a legitimate plan. So from record to record to record, I'm making sure that the moves that we're making make sense. And I'm trying to be conscientious of them and making sure that they're they're planned out.
1: So to me, tell me, tell me if you agree with this or not. To me, like when I think about my own career, it's similar to that. I'm really happy with where I've ended up now. And in hindsight, I can see how everything kind of one thing led to another, and and uh, to, to use your terms, I could uh, retcon it into saying that I had a brilliant strategy, but really I think it is a much more meandering path, and I think the answer is just to have some sort of north star, of to have a rough idea of where you want to go and just keep hacking through the jungle and believe that eventually you're going to chop through that last line of trees and it's going to be there. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's just you. It's, it's, it's the unabashed and you know almost insufferable belief in yourself you have to be okay with other people telling you that you suck you have to be okay with other people telling you that you're not going to be able to do something and you have to be able to tune that out to a degree where it might seem like narcissism but it really is just a deep self-belief in the idea that why not you why can't it be you regardless of the career or the path you want to go on
1: like tell me one reason why it can't be you Yeah. And the the, the answer is there isn't one.
2: It sounds like, you know, a weekend at the Ramada Inn and and a class that you got to pay for to get, it. you know, what I mean, like it, it really sounds like a Tony Robbins thing. The truth of the matter is it is a valid perspective. If someone else was able to achieve this thing, there is obviously a combination of circumstance and luck and everything else. But there is no reason that you can't at least get in the position where you could get to that point. And I think that that is one of the biggest situations that we have where the younger generation of people that are coming up seem to have that even more, you know, I'm from the last generation of kids that we lived a life where we had no internet when I was real little. And we had dial-up internet that barely worked. And by the time I was in high school, suddenly there were cell phones and everything else. But I lived a life before that. And so we lived half a life where we were kids and therefore didn't know anything and had no power. And then by the time we were teenagers, we kind of had to catch up. Now, kids that are born in the last 10, 15 years are going to be born with the belief system that they have the power to make things, do things and create. And I think that that is the biggest cultural shift that we see is that at any age, people believe now that they can make something happen. And I see it seen as a disparaging thing. You see all the time people post those ridiculous polls where they go, Kids today, when they're interviewed, want to be a YouTube star or a celebrity more than anything else. Isn't it a shame? And I don't understand how you could take that away from that. The fact that the generation of kids today want to be something substantive, meaning that they might not land at famous, but their goals are so much higher than just existing, that's a great thing for all of us moving forward.
1: Sure. I think that's a great way to look at it. And, you know, it's a shame that people have the urge to knock down. A kid's goals like that.
2: As someone who was uh, professionally knocked down my goals as a child by other people and adults, I can tell you, it builds a little bit of character, though.
1: When I was a kid, you, you would say that you wanted to be an astronaut, which is statistically way less likely than becoming an influencer. And nobody was like, hey, you dumb little kid, you'll never be a fucking astronaut. Nobody ever said that. Well, because it's seen as a, it's a legacy job. It's a
2: respectable gig.
1: But that's really all bullshit. I mean, there's nothing... More or less respectable of being an astronaut versus anything else, you know what I mean? That's all just a social construct.
2: But that stigma, I think, will go away. I mean, I I, I do believe that in our lifetime, by the time I'm an old person, I believe that we will see someone who has, uh, you know, us influencers' history as a Supreme court justice. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like these are things that
1: Jake Paul for Supreme court. I you know, I don't mean to say specific <laughs> personalities I know, I know. or whatever,
2: and I'm not familiar specifically with, with different individuals, influencers. But what I mean to say is that I think the stigma on internet popularity will go away as, as things continue because it will be composite of every person. We all have our own moments of fame. You know what I mean? We all have, I have uh, members of my family who put up a TikTok of themselves and it's, Hugely successful, more views in a day than, you know, their, you know, the the, the famous member of their families getting on a post on Instagram or whatever. So, you know, it's, I think that that the idea of fame and success will change. I think it's just going to come down to how, how that's a career. I mean, that's the, that is the crux of the whole thing is how is that a financially beneficial?
1: One. Right. Well, you talked about people doubting you. How often have you doubted yourself?
2: Uh, Never in a, in a, I'm not going to do this way and maybe that's maybe that's a foolishness on my part the the issue i have is uh anxiety and and self uh i guess self uh analyzation or analysis Uh, the ability to constantly look at the thing i'm doing is was that the wrong thing or should i do this differently or that kind of thing i i've my whole life you know i've i've dealt with really severe anxiety and ocd and all this stuff it's been part of my life since i was a real little kid so those are things that, you know, I, I get sometimes made fun of because I talk over people and things or I fidget a lot and all that. Like those are, those are realities in my life. So if anything, I'm, I'm critical of myself for things that I know I could get better at. And in the same, at the same token, I'm, I'm someone who spent a lot of time thinking of, did I do or say the wrong thing? Or did I handle that situation the wrong way? Uh, as far as doubt that I'm going to go on stage or go into a situation and not do a good job, That's never really been a thing because I feel like this is the one thing that I really am very good at, you know what I mean?
1: I ask because, you know, I can't think of too many times in my life where other people have told me that I can't do something, but I always question myself. Um, Not because I think I suck or something, It's it's more just like I think because I naturally have an analytical mind, I just sort of think about all the reasons why this might not work. And wouldn't it be smarter just to play it safe and and do this other thing that is much more likely to succeed. So I feel like I have gotten in my own way much more than anybody else has gotten in my way.
2: I think it might be, and I understand that, but I think it might be a chicken or the egg thing because when you're, when you're a kid who's just trying to play shows at clubs and people are showing up and egging your car and your parents' car and throwing shit at you and dressing up to make fun of you and screaming while you're trying to play songs like that you can either go oh I can't do this or you, something clicks and, and it did for me which is like oh I'm going to do this like you're wrong and at about- least they're
1: paying attention you yeah. know this is as I've said many times in videos this is the entertainment business you know I think people oftentimes forget that which you never have it's not really the music business you know unless you are just a songwriter or a producer or something like that it is the inter if you're a performer it is the entertainment business and if people are paying attention to you then you have demon you have demonstrated the ability to capture people's attention, which is ultimately what you are here to do in your line of work.
2: A lot of people uh, make a a living or a nice career off of doing things that are acceptable by other people within the context of what they like and listen to. There is a million pop punk bands that sound and act exactly the same. There's a million other bands. So I think that there is also something to be said for people that just conform and it working to a certain degree. And I think that that's kind of an outlier in all this, but you are correct in the sense that doing something that is trying to shine a light on yourself in some way is inherently incendiary and therefore invites curiosity and invites anger. Kerrang! Magazine putting us on the cover a million times in 2012 saying the world's most hated band certainly benefited the lore of this band and me and all these other things, because how are you not going to check out what that is? How are you not going to talk about what that is? And to this day, the fact that we are 11 years past the kind of, the beginning of this band and anytime anything is ever posted about us on any of these metal sites or anything else, there is still a knee-jerk reaction to need to talk about how terrible and and gross we are. That is only beneficial in the sense that it's immediate conversation, whereas a lot of things don't have that. So, I mean, I think, you know, like there there there's certainly something to being entertaining, but the one thing I never got behind and it really fucking annoyed me was the trend in like 2013 2012 2013 the haters make me famous thing
1: mm-hmm. the
2: idea that when people talk shit about you it's really because they love you and it's
1: because no it's not because they love you
2: <laughs> no and i understood and i i mean again not to pat myself on the back but i understood immediately that most of the people that didn't like me actually didn't like me and that's right. fine it wasn't that they had a secret crush on me and i think a lot no. of bands and a lot of entertainers or uh, artistic people can't accept that someone might not like the thing that they've poured their heart into. So they have to justify it with this. Everybody secretly listens to me. Everybody right. secretly likes me. Some people just fucking hate you. And that's OK. And and by the way, they're inconsequential to the the end game, which is to, for you to be happier, make something you want to make.
1: Yeah. Well, last question for you. You know, you mentioned you're 30 years old now and you literally have grown up, you know, in... I guess we'll call it the music entertainment world, which I think probably most people would agree is not always the most healthy, functional kind of atmosphere for a teenager to be in. What have you learned as far as, uh, I guess, lessons about mental health or how to kind of be a healthy, happy person in an environment that I think is not always conducive to that?
2: I made a lot of mistakes when I was younger in terms of people that I let myself hang out with or let kind of sycophants that allowed me or uh, put me in positions where I would drink excessively or drugs or whatever it is. And because I was so young, I, I felt like, you know, I was just living it up and having fun and all that stuff. And so I think when I was, by the time I was in my mid twenties, I kind of realized what was happening and what I needed to remove myself from. And now it's been you know, it's been five years since I've drank and I've, I've been in a position where, you know, I, I quit smoking cigarettes. I'm still trying to get off nicotine, but I, I'm in a very different headspace to where I see all the stuff that I get to do is fun and can really appreciate it. And I think the pitfalls and all the things that you fall into, they end up being just as cliched as you don't want them to be. You know what I mean? All the things of doing cocaine and the bathroom of the rainbow, whatever, it, like all that shit, like it's just, it's ridiculous and, and sad, but I'm very happy that I got to be in a position early enough in my life where I kind of understood what, what was happening and it turned my life in a position where now where I'm still a young person, I'm still getting to do this. I get to enjoy it inherently. And I didn't wait until I was 60 to figure out that I was wasting all this time, you know? So I'm really excited for this next chapter of, of the band's career and my career. I mean, I think the one thing that's always been important is to be genuine in what you're doing. And if you're, if you're living this life of excess and idiocy, it's very hard to talk at length about the legitimacy of your art because you're you're in many ways unless you're writing dumbass songs about like, you know, being at the strip club or whatever else, like you're not being honest about your art. And I tried in many ways to write songs that were uh in those days emotional and whatever else, but then you'd go on stage and just didn't feel like the art was connecting. And I feel like at this point in my life, the most important thing is to write and build stories that feel like they connect with my actual life and who I am. And similarly for the band, we kind of all feel the same way. So the biggest danger for a young person getting involved in this is to fall prey to uh, predatory personality types. And I think that you can't really avoid that. This industry is as cliche in many ways as people think it is when it comes to you know, here's the good looking 19 year old kid and we're going to make sure that he feels like he's very safe, but we're also going to make sure that we, whatever it is, leech off of him financially or whatever There's There's all that stuff around. And I try, if I ever speak to young artists, I try to impart just the wisdom of believe in your own intuition, trust yourself. When you feel like something is amiss or you feel like you're not acting like the person you should be acting like, trust that and follow your own path, because ultimately, you're probably right. And you're probably not surrounded by people who love and care about you. And you're those little context clues and things, you know, that old adage that everybody always says, people show you who they are, when you meet them, you just have to listen. It is true. And I think that this this industry can be full of that. And I think that I've been very lucky that, you know, whether it's uh, Juliet and my my wife, or, or whether it's my family, my parents, I have a really fucking great support system of excellent, Kind hearted people with great integrity. And that is the thing that's most important for anybody, especially if you're young getting into this, is to be around people who have integrity. You know, my best friend in the world, I, I talked to Ryan Downey a million times a day, is a high integrity person in this industry. Pat Fogarty, that I've worked with for years and years, high integrity person. Blasco, everybody. I mean, down the line, I've been able to surround myself with really kind hearted, real people. Um, who care about me and that has kept out the kind of the demons and the monsters and the things that, uh, on the outside
1: good advice words of wisdom thank you so much for your time and i'm excited to see uh what comes next for the band and for you
2: thanks man yeah new record june 4th and we're very excited about it everybody always says you know heaviest and most melodic or best <laughs> record i'll just say that we are in an emotional position better a better place than we've ever been in and we've really fucking enjoyed making this record and i i think Fans of, of our band will really, really like what this is. I think it's it's a very good Blackfell Brides record and it represents the best of what this band is. And, and we really, really love it. So I hope the fans
1: do too. I'm sure they will. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag
3: This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurwitz, and -and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love.